welcome to the War Studies podcast. We bring you world-leading research from the School of Security Studies at King's College London, the largest community of scholars in the world dedicated to the study of all aspects of security, defence and international relations. We aim to explore the complex realm of conflict because the study of war is fundamental to understanding the world we live in and the world we want to live in. Things shaped as lipsticks which could fire bullets or uh, hollow shoes where you could hide documents. Um, fast forwarding up to more recent ones where uh, there were stories about British intelligence hiding transmitting devices in pretend rocks in a Moscow park. In the first episode of the New War Studies podcast, we talked to Professor Mike Goodman, our head of department, about the fascinating world of Cold War spies and double agents. Cold War Moscow was a place like no other. The eyes and ears of the Soviet secret police, the KGB, were everywhere. The only place that was really safe, as one political prisoner would later write, was in your dreams. It was a place where life and death existed side by side, as did opportunity and imprisonment. To betray the state was to risk everything, yet on one cold and snowy evening in February 1978, that was precisely the choice one individual made. As Gus Hathaway drove from the US Embassy to his residence, he stopped for petrol. He was coming out of the petrol station when there was a tap on his car window. A Russian. Hathaway was one of the original breed of the CIA, recruited at the start of the Cold War. Parts of a cadre who spent their careers hidden in the shadows fighting cat and mouse battles with their Russian counterparts. Hathaway had been appointed a CIA Moscow station chief at a crucial time in the espionage confrontation between East and West. The CIA had lost a number of significant agents and those back in Washington had decreed that no new agents were to be recruited until the losses could be explained. But Hathaway knew better than to reject an overt gesture from the main enemy. This was neither the first nor the last approach the Russian made, but eventually he was able to make contact and Hathaway secured support to recruit him. The result was more than Hathaway could have hoped for. The Russian Adolf Tolkachev was a disgruntled engineer who had lost faith in the Soviet system. And over the next seven years, he provided document after document, sharing a wealth of intelligence and saving the US defence establishment so much money, he earned the nickname, the Billion Dollar Spy. From his first interactions with the CIA, Tolkachev would have been made aware of the dangers he faced. He had to be tightly controlled by the CIA, with his information very carefully concealed so that only select individuals knew anything about him. But even this was not enough. At some point in 1985, the KGB learnt of his identity, almost certainly via CIA officers secretly working for the Russians, and Tolkachev was arrested, interrogated and executed. Hello, my name is Lizzie Ellen, and I'm co-producer and co-host of the War Studies podcast, along with my colleague Aisha Khan. Introducing our episode today, the first in the new version of the War Studies podcast, is none other than our head of department, Professor Mike Goodman. Alongside heading up the Department of War Studies at King's College London, Mike is a professor of intelligence and international affairs. He has published widely in the field of intelligence history, through to contemporary intelligence issues, Cold War history, and the history of nuclear weapons. He is also a visiting professor at the Norwegian Defence Intelligence School and at Sciences Po Paris, and was recently seconded to the UK Government Cabinet Office as Official Historian of the Joint Intelligence Committee, Volume 2, which will be published in 2021. 
So welcome to our virtual Zoom studio, Mike. So great you could join us in the first episode of the new War Studies podcast. And what a fantastic subject to get us started on. The shadowy world and thrilling adventures of the spies who turned traitor during the Cold War. When we think of spies, our minds usually turn to the likes of James Bond and MI6 with their cut glass British accents, sent off to far-flung destinations around the world to uncover clandestine operations. But the story you opened with specifically dealt with a Russian or Soviet citizen who took the decision to spy for the other side, the Americans, as a double agent. What is the definition of a double agent and how much more dangerous was this occupation than what your average spy got up to? And is it even a correct distinction to talk about agents on the one hand and double agents on the other? Thanks very much, Lizzie. It's a a great pleasure and honour and privilege to be on this pioneering new podcast. I'm very, very delighted to be able to talk about it Uh, and delighted to be able to talk about intelligence history, something which I've been interested in for a very long time and which uh, is is obviously very common and very popular now in, in the media. So you asked about agents and double agents, and in some ways these are uh, semantic differences. What's important, I think, is agents were someone who was recruited, uh, whether they volunteered themselves or whether they were somehow uh, recruited by an imposing intelligence service, but who were run by that intelligence service against their own country's wishes and interests and concerns. A double agent was technically someone who was already spying, working as an intelligence officer for one country, but secretly passing that information back to another country at the same time. And often it kept going. You could get triple agents and it would become very, very confusing. Um, So much so that one author spoke about the wilderness of mirrors, talking about the worlds of intelligence and counterintelligence and trying to catch spies amongst your, your own side. That sounds really fascinating. I suppose some of these individuals must have been, you know, would you say psychopaths and sociopaths and, you know, what compels you to switch so many times from one side to the other? Yeah, some of them absolutely were sociopaths, I think. I mean, I think there's there are very interesting psychological studies that are only just beginning to emerge about the, not the officers that ran these agents, but the agents themselves. Some of them certainly were attracted to the, the sort of danger and power of spying. Um, there are a variety of reasons why they spied in the first place, but um, absolutely, I think that there's, there has to be a level of sociopathy there and also a, a level of, I don't know, cunning and wanting to be deceitful as well as having absolute belief in, in what you're doing, regardless of the reason that you're doing it. Yeah, very strange. How much more deadly was it being um, one of these individuals who decides to spy for the other side than, say, just a normal spy spying for their own country? The, the dangers were really depending, I think, on wh- which country you were working for. Uh, if you were a Russian national and you volunteered your services, for instance, to Britain's intelligence service, during the Cold War, the very real risk of being caught was execution. And there are lots of examples of uh, Russian agents having been caught in the Soviet Union, being executed, having been caught overseas and being executed. Uh, I mean, near to Kings, for instance, there was uh, a Bulgarian dissident called Georgi Markov, who in the late 1970s was executed on Waterloo Bridge with a, with a little ricin tablet that was shot out of a specially made umbrella into the back of his leg. On the other hand, if you were... Uh, a Briton who spied for the Russians, as many did in the early half of the, the 20th century, the worst you could really expect was uh, a very long prison sentence. Uh, and same in America, although America did execute one or two spies early on in the Cold War. But, but invariably, the prison was a much 
was the worst alternative, whereas in Russia, it, it tended to be more execution. And what, I mean, in the case of these individuals who turned against their own states um, in pursuit of causes of the enemy, what motivated them to become traitors and take on such deadly risks? The old-fashioned view was really that there were four primary reasons why someone would spy for another side. Um, and often one of the acronyms, there are various different ones, people at various points use the acronym MICE. So people spied for money, you know, for financial gain, for, for a variety of reasons, whether it was out of sheer greed or because they'd gotten themselves into some kind of financial hole that they couldn't get out of and, and espionage was the answer. Uh Sometimes it was out of ideological concerns. And certainly if you go back to the Soviet system in the 1930s, lots of Brits spied for the Russians for ideological region, reasons. They believed in communism. And equally, you see that reversing in the, in the 1950s. And, and, and Tolkachev, who we opened with, is a good example of that. He, he fell out of love with the Soviet system. He uh, was very, very concerned and upset about the, the, the terror and the, uh, the persecution that went on and worked for the other side. Uh, sometimes people spied for coercion. It, that tended to be more of a Russian tactic than a British or American tactic. But blackmail was often a very good mechanism to get someone to work for you. Uh, and finally, there was E for ego. Lots of people did this because they thought they were better than they were than they actually were, that they should have been more senior and they weren't being recognised by their own sides. Um, and so they decided to spy and to sort of increase their own self-importance. Uh, and probably it's under that ego category, I suppose, that the more sociopathic tendencies come out in them. And, and certainly some of the historical examples within that category have massive egos and massive underlying psychological problems, I think. Absolutely. And just looking at some of the motivations, and in particular um, the ideological motivation um, Looking at it from the other side, um, so um, many of us know of the sort of notorious Cambridge Five, uh, five Cambridge University students who went on to spy for the USSR in the early half of the century. Can we talk a little bit about them and their motivations? But also, um, did we find a lot of people turning traitor because of ideological reasons, because of the nature of the Cold War itself as a kind of battle of ideologies between communism and capitalism, which were kind of being fought out on the world stage? I mean, I think you can you can make some uh, two sweeping generalizations in, in the period leading up to the Second World War, particularly the nineteen late nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties. It was a period where, if you looked across Europe, you know the storm clouds were gathering. Great metaphor: Hitler, Hitler was coming to power in uh, Germany, uh, Mussolini in Italy, Stalin in Russia, Spanish Civil War that Franco would eventually win, and these were these were very you know, extreme either right-wing or left-wing governments. They were dictatorships, they were, they were, they persecuted, uh, you know, a, ver a variety of different minorities and other groups which they didn't like. But the reality was in the 1920s and certainly in the 1930s, and, and really up until the mid-1930s, I would say, if there was one country that stood up against uh, Nazism and fascism more broadly, it was Soviet Russia. And so there were a great number of sort of idealised young men, they were invariably young men, at university in the 1930s in, in the UK, um, who saw communism and Soviet Russia both as, you know, the fundamental opponent of Nazism, but also as this... And so if you look at the Cambridge Five, 
you know, what motivated them was not necessarily a love for Russia and not necessarily a particular hatred of Britain, I don't think, but really a sense that communism was the answer. Uh, and so they, they, they volunteered for the communist cause really for ideological reasons. In much the same way as you see a number of other spies from that period uh, volunteering for the Russians because they really hated the Nazis and that's, that was the way to do it. Fast forward then to, to the 1950s. And by the 1950s, uh, of course, Britain and, and, and America and Russia had all been allies on the war, fighting the Germans. They had been victorious. The sort of wartime marriage of convenience, as it was termed, had split apart. Uh, and by the late 1940s, Brits and Americans were beginning to see the Russians, I think, from, from more of what we would come to know them as. Details were very slowly beginning to emerge about Stalin's terrors in the 1930s, the idea that it was this peaceful, uh, you know, forward-looking society w was beginning to fall apart ever so slightly. And that would really completely crumble in the mid-1950s after the death of Stalin uh, and when his successor, Khrushchev, very famously in 1956, gave a speech which revealed all about the, the, the terrors and what had gone on. The point of that was, after that point, people like Tolkachev and a host of others really got to know what the Soviet system was like and decided that they did not want to work in it or live in it or support it. And so you see this ideological shift from the 1950s onwards where people portray the Soviet Union much more for ideology in, in favour of uh, Britain and America. Well, that makes sense. Um, and certainly, but there were still some spies, weren't there, um, who uh, turned against the West and, and, and sort of spied for Russia. We've talked about Tolkachev from the other side, but what, what, who are the notorious spies from the kind of, the, you know, American spies who were spying on behalf of the Russians? I think that there were a number. I mean, in the early past of the Cold War and the last ones to be executed were, were the Rosenbergs. And they, they'd been working for the Russians in the 1940s. They were ideologically... Uh, disposed to communism, uh, and they passed during the war a number of atomic secrets and various other things, and it, and it led to a, a fair degree of conspiracy, I suppose, and also controversy about whether their espionage crimes warranted the death penalty. But if you go beyond that, really in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there, there were two very well-known, hugely catastrophic, I suppose, in terms of the damage they caused spies. Uh, a CIA officer called Aldrich Ames and an FBI officer called uh, Robert Hansen, and both of them were uh, motivated entirely by money. They, they, they wanted, needed money. Uh, Ames had fallen into, uh, he, he'd married someone who sort of demanded a richer lifestyle than he could afford, and he, he saw, he got himself into debt, and he saw working for the Russians as the way to get out of that. And he passed across reams and reams of documents almost certainly, you know, guaranteed the death of a number of different Soviet agents, Soviet citizens who had been working for the West, they were rounded up and executed. Um, Hansen did it for money, but also um, it, it seems out of some kind of psychological problems with authority and leadership and stuff as a child. But both of them were eventually arrested. Both of them are still serving prison sentences in, in the United States, and, and neither of them were, are likely ever to be released. And what's interesting about them, I think, is, you know, they didn't necessarily have any particular love for Russia. They didn't particularly have any love for the communist system. They both carried on working for the Russians after the fall of communism. It was, it was that pure sort of greed, I suppose, which kept them going. But I think there's also a, a great sense of danger that once you start it, it's very hard to stop. Yeah, of course. 
And you touched on this slightly before when you talked about the agent, the Bulgarian agent who was shot on uh, Waterloo Bridge with uh, bullets or something disguised in an umbrella. What were some of the other sort of bizarre gadgets and gizmos that were used by intelligence operations during the Cold War, either to kind of cover spies covering their tracks or to execute um, individuals? I think that there were lots and lots of them, and it's actually one of the, the more sort of ingenious stories of the Cold War. And they range from, you know, the large to the small. Some of the most important uh, intelligence gizmos, I suppose, were the very, very advanced cameras that flew on aeroplanes, that, that, you know, the, the spy planes that flew on the edge of outer space, that, that flew twice as high as commercial aircraft do. Uh, the pilots had to wear pressurized suits, yet they could take photographs down to something like a meter resolution. And, and the technology that went into those was immense. Um, on the other end of the camera scale were the, were the cameras that uh, people like Tolkachev and others would have been given, which were tiny little uh, Minox cameras where you could take photographs very, very quickly. You didn't have to suspend them particularly high above the documents and you could really very effectively see what was going on. Uh, one of the Russians who was working for the Americans um, he was discovered because they noticed in some of these photographs that the, that the hands had changed. That when, he, when he was originally being used for these photographs, you could see his fingers holding the pages down of his book or, or the notes. Uh, and at some stage, it worked out that actually it was someone else's hands and therefore he must have been compromised and, and caught. But there were a whole host of other gadgets, uh, things shaped as lipsticks, which could fire bullets or uh, hollow shoes where you could hide documents. Um, fast forwarding up to more recent ones where uh, there were stories about British intelligence hiding transmitting devices in pretend rocks in a Moscow park. So I think the, you know, you look at the fictional side of James Bond, the Q branch, um, and while the gadgets and gizmos are a bit far-fetched, you know, there's an element of truth to them. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Um, And obviously countries were pumping a lot of money and, I guess, research into all of this stuff. They spent billions, I think you've mentioned, billions of dollars on building up their intelligence operations. Why, during the Cold War, did it become so important um, to kind of gather insight into what the other side was was doing? Because, I mean, I guess that's when James Bond first emerges um, and these kind of stories of double agents or agents' death and heroism grip the public imagination. Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally the Cold War, you know, people people have written a lot about this. Was it fundamentally a military battle, a political battle, an ideological battle, economic, etc., etc.? For the intelligence services, the, the, the number one priority was this question, would the Cold War ever become a hot war? You know, for, for both East and West, uh, could you get an advance notice of the Soviet Union or America launching a nuclear missile strike on the other? And so that became the number one priority. But as as the Cold War wore on, the risk of that sort of reduced. And there were various hot points where, you know, both sides came closer to war than the others. But generally speaking, there was a sense that both sides knew that to launch a war would result in their own destruction. And that was the, the nuclear policy of mutually assured destruction. Um, and so the role of the intelligence community was really to get a sense of, you know, what's the other side up to? From our perspective, sitting in London, what are the what are the Russians in this very tightly controlled, compartmentalized, very secretive state um, where, you know, Soviet society was monitored at every turn, the offices were bugged and and buildings were bugged. How could you really find out what they were up to? How could you do that in a serious way? 
And different methods were attempted, but um, often the most important, and, and we can see this from what we know now, were the agents that were able to get really great degrees of access and can provide information. The problem was, of course, they were often very few and far between because it was very hard to recruit them. It's very hard to get information back from Russia or wherever they were based. And the risk of life, risk to life was was very, very significant. So um, it was tremendously difficult. But having that foreknowledge about what the other side was up to warranted all the millions and billions of pounds and dollars and rubles that were spent on these things. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose thinking about this, um, how much difference did these intelligence gathering missions make? Um, Did they, I mean, could you argue that it was basically just down to a few individuals who kind of made the most difference and, and actually may have influenced major historical events and turning points in the Cold War, such as the Cuban Missile Crisis? Was it more down to individuals than the kind of operations itself? I think it, it, it's one of the biggest questions, you know, what what was the role of intelligence? Did it shorten the Cold War? Did it end the Cold War? Did it stop the Cold War becoming a hot war? You know, the, 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 the reality of intelligence is that when things go wrong, you can work out why they went wrong. And you can say an attack took place and we can go back and think, why didn't we have any forewarning? But the converse of that saying, you know, we were very successful, we stopped this happening is a much more difficult task. So trying to put any general comment on it, I think, is is really difficult. And and so what we can do then is look at very specific events. You know, you mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, Britain and America were jointly running a a, a Soviet military officer called Oleg Penkovsky. Uh, The book about him claims he is the spy that saved the world. And, uh, you know, certainly his information was really exceptionally important during that time. Similarly, we can see other episodes where, you know, fantastically useful information was provided, whether it came from a human source or a technical source. Trying to come up with a broader uh, conclusion is much more difficult, I think. And what I would say is perhaps that our, our uh, conclusion can come from the fact that, you know, these agencies continued throughout the Cold War and afterwards. Their budgets continued throughout the Cold War and afterwards governments came to rely on them and so if they were deemed to be unimportant or unnecessary then then that would have changed i think and so we can see small episodes of great importance broadly speaking in my mind the fact that they continued for so long and continue for so long is testament i think to the the role they play and how it's perceived in government yeah i mean do you also get people arguing that perhaps these things should have been done in a more transparent you know so-called ethical way you know through diplomatic processes or conflict resolution and that using kind of intelligence gathering and risking lives in that way is the kind of underhand way Uh, the ethical questions are ones which certainly in the academic literature have emerged much more recently and they really began to emerge i think you know post iraq post 9 11 when in the way in which prisoners were being treated and interrogated and tortured and, and and how do you use that information should you gather it should you use it if someone else has gathered it via torture but arguably, you know, the ethics of this are no less dangerous or severe, I suppose, or significant going back to the Cold War. A, a Russian who offers their services, you know, Tolkachev knocking on the car door, he would have been told very explicitly, 
are you aware of the dangers that you're facing if you're caught? And actually, a number of different CIA officers who ran agents in, in Moscow spoke about that sort of mental pressure, knowing and that, that this person's life was in their hands. You know, it sounds very dramatic, but the reality was they knew if, if they messed up, if they were, were followed meeting one of their agents, it was hugely, hugely significant. Um, and and both of those, I think, are a stark contrast to the view in the 1930s um, of one American statesman who uh, commenting on the idea that you could listen into other people's conversations or you could open their mail said, gentlemen, do not read other people's letters. Uh, and certainly there was a view by the mainstream diplomats, I would say, you know, largely up until World War Two, that espionage was a bit of a dirty business, that it's not what gentlemen really took part in. And actually, World War II, I think, was the watershed that changed all of that very significantly. Yeah, that was very interesting. And obviously, James Bond is like a token gentleman, isn't he, really? So definitely changed by the time of the Cold War, when he first emerges. Um, so thinking now to kind of present day, I guess, what does all of this mean to us now? Um, and we're sort of coming out the other side of post-Cold War, post-Soviet world, where this kind of liberal international order was established and there was great hope for kind of international solidarity. And we're entering a new kind of world where much uncertainty reigns over Russian resurgence and China's rise as a global superpower. Do you think in these times of uncertainty, nations are starting to up their intelligence gathering activities? And how do agents and double agents of today differ from those of the past? I think the difficulty intelligence agencies face today are really the multitude of threats. You know, you go back to the Cold War, Russia and Soviet Union was was threat number one. And um, there were other threats within that, but they were much smaller in scope and um, sort of very different. And, and I think now you, you look at the threats that are arising all around the world from very significant uh, military and political threats, economic threats, obviously non-state actors and the threats they face. Um, it means you have to have an intelligence service which is very agile, very able to adapt, I think, to, to topics as they emerge from time to time, but also one which can be very fluid. And, and that means that you need to be able to maintain those sort of older fashioned state-based targets, as well as looking at cyber threats, as well as looking at economic threats and, you know, brain drain and stealing of your own side. So I think it's it's a tremendously difficult task. And when you then factor in you know, the, the Cold War problem, which was arguably not enough information to what many people talk about today is, you know, information overload. How do you deal with all of those? It's, it's finding the needle in the haystack. It's finding the relevant bit of information and then making sure that someone can do something about it. And I think that's often the, the ignored bit of intelligence work. You know, we, we, get, we, we, we dwell on spies and the great stories of daring do and heroism and execution and everything that's very exciting. But you tend not to think about the, the broader point, which is, so what? You know, these people provided that information. What then happened as a result? Did it affect decision making? Did it make a difference? And I think for today in the modern world, you know, those questions are still there. But it's a question of how do you get that process to move much quicker, more rapidly, with more agility in a, in a way which was never the case in the Cold War, I think. Yeah, and I know, I think... <laughs> From, you know, this summer, there's been a lot of focus on what was happening um, with the, the Intelligence and Security Committee of Parliament. Um, 
and the Russia report that came out where there was a lot of talk of inactivity and kind of, you know, kicking things into the long grass um, through countless UK, recent UK governments. Um, have we been a bit complacent, do you think, over the last few decades with all of this? I mean, I think the difficulty with intelligence work is hindsight is brilliant. You know, hindsight will always tell us that where we went wrong and why we went wrong and how we should have done things differently. And the reality is, a bit like terrorism, you, you always have to draw the line somewhere. You can't follow every single terrorist suspect. Uh, and so in the wake of a terrorist attack, you know, invariably the culprit was on the radar at some point, but was decided that they shouldn't be followed. And so you have to draw the line somewhere. And I think the great difficulty is where do you draw that line? The the question of Russia, I think, is a more difficult one. And if you if you trace the history of it, you know, the big threat, of course, up until the late 1980s, early 1990s, and then a, a large gap, I suppose, in, uh, where other sorts of threats took priority for the intelligence community before Russia began to come back. Uh, and I think there's always a very careful line between wanting to to spy on another side while trying to remain politically neutral or trying to remain friendly with them. And history history will tell us one day whether we were too quick or too slow to focus on the Russian threat. But it's very different, I think, to having the answer to that question at that time. Um, so we're now going to move on to uh, our feature questions, which is the part of the podcast where we look at the researcher behind the research and what compels them to explore their area of expertise in the world of war studies. So why a research career in kind of intelligence and spies? I mean, did you have a childhood dream to be a secret agent and this was a backup option? I had two dreams as a child and two great aspirations. The two, the two dreams were either to be a spy or to play for West Ham. And the two objectives I always had as a kid was to have a West Ham season ticket and to one day have a Porsche. Not all four of those have come true, and I shall let you work out how many of those, if any, have come true. But I was always interested in spy things. And, you know, the cliche, which is absolutely true here, is I think it was James Bond that got me into it. Um, how I fell into this as an academic subject was totally by chance. Uh, I remember very vividly being an MA student at the University of Nottingham, going to my supervisor and him saying, it's now come to the time of year where you have to choose your dissertation topic. What would you like to do? And I said, well, I've always loved Cold War history and Russian history. I'd like to do something on that. And he said, do you speak Russian? And at that time, the answer was no, I do not speak Russian. So he said, you can't do a history of Russia then. And he said, what, what are you interested in? And I said, oh, well, I like spies. I, I quite like technology and bombs and, you know, sort of boy things. And um, he said, well, why don't, you, why don't you focus on intelligence on the Soviet atomic bomb as an MA thesis? And, and that was sort of, you know, one of these sliding door moments, I suppose, where you see your career going down totally different paths. And I, I fell in love with that and very quickly wrote a PhD proposal and got funding from the AHRC, which is one of our research councils, to do a bigger study on British Cold War intelligence on the Soviet nuclear weapons program. Uh, and then very fortunately, in the third year of my PhD, a job came up in the Department of War Studies, King's College London, where a new MA in intelligence had been launched. Uh, and the person who had been running it for a year or two had left and there was an urgent need to fill it. And, you know, the rest is history. 
Absolutely. Um, and do you speak Russian now? Not really. I'm I'm taking evening classes and trying to learn, but I I have decided that there are several things in my life which I will never be able to master, and one of those is understanding how grammar works and how foreign languages work. And why do you think it's important that we study intelligence, uh, particularly from a historical point of view? I mean, I could give you the cliched answer, which is you can go back to one of the earliest British books on this, where it said intelligence is the missing dimension. We know what happened in terms of foreign policy and military policy, but we don't understand why those decisions were made. And and this book argued that actually, if you look at the decision making behind the decisions, it was in, it was the intelligence product that was sort of helping influence those decisions. And so, um, for me, you know, one level. It's just really interesting. I I find it absolutely fascinating to read uh, and to work on. But I think it does give you a a certain sense about how governments work. And I think what's fascinating is certainly something I've found from researching Cold War British policymaking is you can see what politicians are doing and then you can see what the civil servant policymakers are doing and then you can see what the intelligence community is doing. And there are definitely examples where those three layers don't match up. And so I think there are, there are really interesting questions about, you know, where does the real power balance lie within governmental decision making? Which is not to say that what happened in the Cold War is true today and vice versa, but I think it's really interesting to delve into those in, in more detail. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that I, I would say, certainly from my point of view, people forget the role of intelligence in policymaking. And we just think that it's this transparent process uh, where we can see everything. But there, I guess there is a missing piece. And I mean, what's the worst thing about researching this area? There must be major challenges when it comes to accessing confidential materials. How do you get your hands on the, the key top secret documents? Well, the, sim- the simple and, the, you know, the official answer, of course, is you wait for them to be declassified by the government and then you go in and find them. There are uh, great um, problems, I suppose, in that, you know, often, and this is not specific to intelligence, but just archival record keeping, you can find something great and then you can never, ever find out what happened afterwards. And maybe the records weren't maintained or maybe they haven't been released or maybe they got lost at some stage. It's very, very difficult. And so you have to think up often imaginative ways of finding those answers. And sometimes it's it's looking in other countries' archives where they were a liaison partner with, with your own country. Sometimes it's looking in other government departments internally. Often it's interviews and it's finding personal papers uh, and tracking down, you know, long lost individuals who were involved to see if they remember what happened. I think then being an official historian comes with other problems because all of a sudden, of course, you are given access to all of those top secret documents and you can't refer to them. And I remember very vividly being at conferences and, uh, or reading things, knowing that people were wrong with absolute, you know, 100% assurance, but not being able to tell them because I couldn't disclose what I knew or how I knew it. So I think there are, you know, there's that fascinating moment when you go from one side to the other and you, you see things from both perspectives. And both come with problems and neither are, you know, without those issues, but both are fascinating. Yeah, I think I would really struggle to keep the secrets um, and not tell people. (laughs) It it helps having a very bad memory. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) What would you say has been the highlight of your career in this research area? Ooh, I think probably being um, appointed the official historian back in 2007 of the Joint Intelligence Committee was my uh, highlight. And I was, you know, not wishing to blow my own trumpet, the youngest ever official historian appointed. And 
it's like one of those moments when I suppose you you research a subject. You know, if you're a medieval historian or a Roman historian, you think, wow, I can recreate this from the meagre documents I have. And then all of a sudden you're given a time machine and said, go back to the Roman era and you can experience it for reality. It was a little bit like that, only to then be told you can go back to the present day, but you can't talk about all of it, just some bits. Um, but being, a, a, you know, an official historian, I think, is, is an absolute privilege and something I will always cherish. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and what's next in, in, in your career and kind of research in this area? Oh, well, you know, being head of department doesn't allow very much time for research, especially at the moment. But the, the big thing is to finish um, volume two of the official history of, of the Joint Intelligence Committee. Volume one came out in 2014. It was named as one of the Spectator's Books of the Year, which was very exciting. Um, volume two is almost finished. I've just got the conclusion left to write uh, and have had so for a number of months. But that, that's the next big project to finish. Um, and then I have a, a sort of longer term project, which I, I suppose I won't start for another few more years, which is looking at World War II British intelligence on the German atomic bomb. Uh, and actually, there are bits of that story which are reasonably well known, the, the sort of very end of it, the bombing of the uh, heavy water plant in Norway. But actually, the early half is much more interesting. And, and, and you know, how, how did Britain in, gather intelligence on this very, very secret programme? And it comes with, I think, a really interesting sort of intelligence conundrum, which is how do you prove that a country hasn't achieved something? You know, the, the, the Russian one was all about how do you prove the Russians have got to such and such a stage in atomic developments and you could, you could work that out. This is almost the opposite. How do you prove that the Germans haven't built a bomb, which was the conclusion, but how do you prove that? Because who knows what you don't know and how do you prove something you don't know? So some uh, interesting challenges ahead, I think. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. We'll be on the lookout for that, especially the book that comes out in 2021. Thank you, Mike, for um, a really, really interesting discussion and for featuring on our first episode of the new podcast series. Um, thanks for joining us today. Absolute pleasure. Thanks very much, Lizzie and Aisha. You've been listening to the War Studies podcast, produced and edited by Lizzie Ellen and Aisha Khan, from the School of Security Studies at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to receive regular updates, please visit our website, which you'll find in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on your preferred podcast provider. It really helps us reach more listeners. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the War Studies Podcast. <laughs>